Welcome to this Sunday worship service. Uh, good morning to you. I'm glad it's my privilege to bring to you God's word. Let's turn our attention to this now. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first 14 verses. This is a little mid-year reflection break uh, before we start a one-month series in the book of Psalms and then a one-month series on missions. But for today, let's give our full attention to this, starting at verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck, pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. All right, this is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Mid-year reflections from the book of Ecclesiastes. The first eight verses are anything but safe and sentimental philosophy removed from the realities of life. I know they're put into songs, it's poetry, but it's anything but that. In the first eight verses, there are 28 short statements, 14 of them are positive, and 14 of which are negative. So simple math, 14 positives, 14 negatives cancel each other out. The author is communicating. Life seems to be a zero-sum game. 14 positives, 14 negatives that cover different seasons of life. All different kinds of time in life. Seems to be it adds up to zero. Verse 9, the inspired author asks of himself and he asks of you, basically, throughout the entirety of this book, what's the point? Hey, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? Why live it? What is there to be gained? If at all, what is gained in life? Well, this author, most likely it was King Solomon in the first two chapters goes into some detail of how he researched and applied all kinds of wisdom throughout the world, 
He indulged in every kind of pleasure. He had a wild, unhindered success at work, like nonstop success at work. And then he accumulated wealth and possessions and renown that is reserved really only for kings and queens types. And he comes to a haunting conclusion in our passage and to the rest of the book. Oh, it leaves me so disappointed. At least this author, moved by the Holy Spirit, kind of been there, done that, tried everything under the sun. Oh, it, is this it? That's it? How meaningless, how vain, how disappointing. This is a book in the Bible. It's called a wisdom book. And one of the points of wisdom books is to save you and I all the angst and all the trouble of reaching the same conclusion through your own lifelong experience. Wisdom books are here to proactively intervene and prevent and protect you and stop you today from an all-out delusional pursuit that on the other side of wisdom, pleasures, knowledge, wealth, status, and reputation will somehow bring meaning and satisfaction. Ecclesiastes is a deconstruction of life. Yeah, it is a philosophical take. Everything under the heavens, everything under the sun, that's a repeated phrase. Everything we can do and experience here and now, he deconstructs it. In other words, all of life that you and I do apart from God, it concludes in vanity of vanities. Oh, what regret, how empty it is. Now, if it is true that everything returns to nothing, what then again is the point? Well, until we get to verse 11, there would be no point. It takes a surprising supernatural vertical turn. And in verse 11, we just read, God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these 14 verses? What do we do with this book? What can we learn? At least three things first. What can we learn first? Humility. Humility. Notice the occasions that cannot possibly be predicted or planned or controlled or even chosen. The bookends to life. What are the bookends to life? A time to be born. Can you choose that? The other end to life, which is a time to die. Most people, can you really choose that? Humility. After a landslide victory of then California Governor-elect Gavin Newsom in 2018, in his victory speech, quote, the sun is rising in the west, and the arc of history is bending in our direction. Quite a bit of hubris in a political campaign. You get drunk with power that you can dare to say, 
that the arc of history is bending in our direction? No, my friends, God alone, God alone, not any governor, not king, not queen. They all come and go. Only God can bend and direct all, all of time, every season, every occasion, back toward his will. Look at verse 11 again, after it says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out. Let me pause there for a second. He or she cannot find out. You cannot figure it out. Figure out what? What God is doing. What God has done from the beginning to the end. Of course, our culture, everything about a culture is, especially American Western culture, is allergic to humility. But therefore, we suffer greatly for it. And the Bible is always countercultural. Did you know that there's psychosomatic benefits to what the Bible would prescribe? You see, humility eases this neurotic need to comprehend and explain and maybe even try to fix and answer for everything in the world. Humility calms that down. Humility instills meaning. Gratitude, even contentment in every season, in each time, appropriately, because if you happen to believe, God has assigned it. So let me say that again. The humble who believe that God is in full control, there's a season for this, there's a season for that. Even in the seasons that are brutal and painful, there can be an undergirding of grateful contentment that God has assigned it for you at that time. How about discernment? How about discernment? Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. If anyone in this room had this down perfectly, if you had divine wisdom, you'd be a trillionaire. Warren Buffett plays the stock market with some wisdom, does he not? If you knew how to hold on to something just long enough or how to let go of something, not too early or late, with all of your stocks or all of your business, you would do, frankly, really well. How about your kids? How about the seasons and the stages your children grow and morph into? Oh, it is phenomenal. A parent who is, has the wisdom to know how long I can hold on to and try to keep and when it's really time to let go in different levels. Discernment. Who doesn't want it? Well, in James chapter 1, only the humble get it. Only the humble need it. Only the humble acknowledge they desperately need it. Only the humble will ask and pray for it from God, and they will seek wise counselors. What do we do with the seasons and all of life and all that it brings, the positives and the negatives? Well, first, we can learn and we can gain humility. Here's second. Holy fear. 
I'm going to call it holy fear. Look at the conclusion of verse 14. It says, so that people fear before him. Now, that is one key loaded Old Testament reality. It is the gateway to all of Old Testament wisdom. The fear of God. A holy fear of God. And like with anything to do with God, it is not that simple and easy to explain in a couple words. But I would summarize Holy fear is the one and only appropriate attitude before maker God. The only appropriate attitude before creator God. I'll call it holy fear. You know, on the one hand, it is the healthiest kind of fear. The healthiest kind of fear. You guys know in fight or flight situations, when there is impending danger, there is a surge of alert, alarm, and adrenaline that makes you extra careful. It actually maybe gives you extra power. This is to protect and maybe possibly save you from cataclysmic disaster. Now, when that surge of adrenaline, that fight or flight situation is on constant overdrive and you can never shut it down, that is debilitating. It's really unhealthy. At the same time, if it's on underdrive, it's been desensitized or deadened for whatever reason, you are going to be in danger and really not that alert and not be able to save yourself from what is to come. Now, my friends, you guys know, is there anything or anyone in all the world that is more consequential or relevant or imminent? Anyone or anything in all of life, you might say, more dangerous than your maker God? The only appropriate attitude is what we call this is holy fear. It's the healthiest kind of fear. And when a church or individuals undergo spiritual renewal, the Holy Spirit comes afresh. There is a dosage of holy fear that just undoes casual, unprepared, always late, bored and distracted and even calloused attitudes before God. Holy fear will cure that. Now, on the other hand, not only is it the healthiest kind of fear, on the other hand, it is altogether different and, of course, altogether better than just sheer dread. Okay, if you dread something, if you dread someone, you'll keep your distance. You just want to avoid them. That is not holy fear with God. Some of you in this room only dread. You only panic. You only tremble. You only have trauma. Holy fear is not true of anyone in this room that says, I want to stay as far away from God as I can. That is not what the Old Testament ever speaks of. Take, for instance, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He gets near the presence of a holy God. There is a chorus blaring on repeat by the angels. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. God is extremely holy. That's what that means. God is superlatively holy. God is like maximum, the standard. 
He is the summation of whatever holy means. And the prophet himself, when he gets remotely near the chorus and the actual presence of a holy, holy, holy God, he wants to disintegrate and die. He literally says, my whole fiber is like my whole body is falling apart. I can't take it. No one can take it. No one will, will withstand it. Everybody will react in the same way before a holy, holy, holy God until God touches Isaiah. Until God cleanses Isaiah. And my friends, when God touches and cleanses you, he brings you close. He doesn't drive you away. Inasmuch as Isaiah wanted to disintegrate and die before a holy, holy, holy God, that same holy God wants to bring in close the people he loves and saves. So you see, holy fear is this mixture. Hmm? It's kind of a combination of you know you are an absolute wrecked, wretched sinner No one can pretend about this before God. You are a wretched sinner, but God saves you. Holy fear is this transcendent awe, okay? Awe. When was the last time you were speechless? When was the last time you had trouble breathing because you were so overtaken by something majestic, like almost beyond this world? It's hard to describe. It's that, that awe and adoration. It's reverence. It's mad, deepest, most profound respect you could have for anyone. Combined with like a childlike intimate trust. This is the gateway so that people fear before him. So that people fear before him. That's holy fear. That is the only appropriate attitude before a maker God who runs all the seasons and all of time. Maybe a human analogy, which always breaks down, but just a decent, somewhat healthy parent and child relationship. Hey, parents, parents, if you have a child that's two years old, three years old, five years old, how much more does a parent know than that child? Even at 10 years old, oh, around 14, 15, your child's going to think they know a lot more than you. But how much more does a parent really know more than a child? How much more do you think God, if he is your father in heaven, know more than his children? And the only attitude I can find of godly people, and especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, goes like this. Life troubles and throws so many curveballs that I could never figure out or comprehend or explain or fix or answer for. I feel like I'm at a complete loss. You know, there are a lot of people in this room who I know are godly and growing in grace, but because you're growing, you keep telling me you feel like you know less. You are definitely growing. You are growing in holy fear. And while I and you may feel like we're at a complete loss, we know our Father who art in heaven is never at a loss. Life for a Christian person is you and I maybe losing it, like feeling like you're just completely falling apart. But if you have God as your father, 
He never falls apart. He's never confused. And he's never at a loss. But there are a lot of times in life it just seems like it's too much. Oh, certainly so. You know, our sister church, Christ Central in San Francisco, a good friend of ours, Pastor Ben Kim, was telling me they just added on to their staff, Sung Kim from San Jose, a full-time youth pastor, 36 years old, a beloved, gentle, godly brother in our presbytery. One day, Ben was looking at Sung and said, you do not look too well. He's been experiencing like chronic fatigue, losing weight. So he went to the hospital just about two weeks ago and came back and now is diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Would you pray for them? And his wife, Esther, parents of three boys, a newborn, is crying out in her blogs, how can God take someone so witty and funny and compassionate, loving like my own husband, and now seemingly pronounce a death sentence? That's just too much. We're at a loss. But God is never at a loss. We've gotten permission from our missionaries whom we sent over to Taiwan, David and Susanna Nam. They're set to come back for furlough this summer, thanks be to God. But they asked for much prayer. They've been working at Christ College. And the board seemingly wants to, about a week ago, withdraw from Taiwan's accreditation for schools. Which would mean that all the degrees you get from that school are rendered worthless. They have no more value. They want to pay out the faculty and the staff. In effect, the boards wanting to withdraw from accreditation is in effect to just shut down the whole school. And while David and Susanna, along with others, they've invested, what, just two and a half, three years there? But can you feel? They said there's chaos here. Such tensions, heartbreak. Why, oh, why, oh, God, would you send us overseas? And why, oh, why, for all the faculty and the students there at Christ College, would something like this, why would you allow it to happen? Well, I want us to look at verse 14 right here again carefully. There are at least three bedrocks for holy fear. You and I may be at a loss, but God is never at a loss. Here's why. Reason number one, whatever God does endures forever. Whatever God touches, whatever God does, whatever God puts his hand to, there's permanence to it. Permanence. It outlasts everything. It endures everything. It never has to fade or be corruptible. There's no transitions with the things that God does. A second feature, a second bedrock for holy fear, perfection to it perfection. It says, nothing needs to be added or nothing taken away in verse 14. Did you read that? <laughs> God never needs editing. Do you know how many times we had to reshoot videos during COVID on a Thursday afternoon? Drove our AV team crazy. God never has to alter, never has to put in this or think about it later. Oh, I regret not saying that. Perfection. This means God never loses or wastes any time. Let me say that again. In the hands of God, time, this thing time that we live in, 
is never lost, misused, abused, or wasted. For example, look at verse 3. Verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. If there is permanence and perfection to the work of God, that means the harshly negative word of killing, something dying, something ending, putting an end or closure to something. If God is perfect, well, that killing and dying and crucifying is only because it's to bring about healing. A time to break down, break down, like start over, refresh it. Oh, let's start from scratch. Just bring it all down. Let's rebuild. There it is. If there is perfection to the handiwork of God, even breakdowns are for build up. Because if God is perfect, then he's just using time to perfect our imperfections. If God is perfect and he's permanent, all he's doing is doing course corrections. All he's doing is making sure in time he will make it what? Beautiful. He will make what? Only certain things? The most important things? No. It says everything. Everything. Beautiful in its time. A perfecting God. A third bedrock for holy fear. Purposeful. Purposeful. Always filled with purpose in the hands of God. This goes well beyond your immediate thoughts or reactions or feelings to it. Always. You may never know 10 years down the road. You may never know 50 years down the road. You may never know until other people know after you have passed. But well beyond our limited myopic perspectives, God has always purpose to be played out. Look at verse 4 as another example. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Look at verse 8 as another example. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Could it be if God is purpose-filled that all the times of weeping and mourning and hating and being at war Yes, you are at war with someone. You are at war in your household. You are at war in your, in your business climate, business culture right now. Could it be if God is permanent, perfect, and purpose-filled that he would use all of those negative seasons to somehow prepare and produce greater laughing, dancing, loving, and peacemaking if it's all in the hands of God. How do I know that? How can you know that? Romans 8, 28. And God causes all things. All things, again, that's everything. Everything. Nothing lost. You see, nothing wasted. Oh, that little detail. You know, that tertiary incident. You just thought that's so random. I don't know why that happened. God causes all things to work together for what? For your harm? Holding you back? Your regret, all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Oh, what do we do with life? What can we learn from life? Humility, holy fear. Third, last one. Joy and do good. Joy and do good. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better. There is nothing better. So what should you do with your life? What should you do? What should you just fill it with? What is nothing better than this, he says? I've tried everything. Then to be joyful and do good as long as you live. Joy and do good. Now, who should have more joy and do more good than Christian people? Unfortunately, this is not the first stereotype that at least the Western world has with Christian people or evangelicals. Christian people, however, if you have humility and a holy fear that God has got the whole world in his hands, God has really got the whole world in his hands, you know, no matter what happens, you see, he's got the whole world in his hands. Who else then should have more joy and be about doing good? Two specific examples of this. Look at verse 13 of having joy and doing good. Verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink. Okay, eat and drink, essential, repeated, necessary. Like you cannot live unless you eat and drink. Well, there can be joy and you can do good in your eating and drinking. Calvin, not Calvin and Hobbes, John Calvin. He observed, God is the original foodie. He's the original foodie. How do we know that? He didn't just give you one diet. He didn't give you just one kind of food, one staple of food. International, global. Look at the variety, the richness. If you can get it, enjoy it to the glory of God. Now, if you enjoy eating and drinking, you ought to share it. Share it lavishly, generously, hospitably, sacrificially. To this day, the pastors and I have been telling you, you want your non-believing neighbors and friends to be somewhat interested or attracted to the God you worship and believe in, share your goods. Share it over a meal. Do it with joy. Share it, and you know that history itself will end with eating and drinking to the glory of God, and we want all of our family and friends to be there. It's the best witness. Joy in your eating and drinking. Another example, take pleasure in all his toil. All his toil, join your work, join your work. But yeah, it is hard. It's cumbersome at times. It's like toil, blood, sweat, and tears, absolutely. But joy in what you do. Joy in what you do. You know, last Sunday, we had asked Son Kim, who has faithfully served as part of our AV team, as our technical lead. Son Kim wanted to recognize him here on the stage because he just transitioned off staff. Over the week, our staff was able to thank him and tell him how he has blessed us so. But, you know, he doesn't want the stage recognition. Many of you, I know to this day, with many people back there, you don't know who they are. You may not even know who Son is. But I assure you, God does. I assure you, God recognizes him. And he was telling how he's grateful for the culture and some of the relationships that he had with the staff. He regrets he could have built more of the relationships. But he got to see what it takes. Some of just a little bit what it really takes to put on some semi-decent, undistracted Sunday worship service. So thankful for him and many people who faithfully give themselves who may have come and gone. Now... A basic job description 
If I asked you, what do you do? What do you do for a living? What would be your answer? Okay, a basic job description would be, well, I do this and I do this. I set up and prepare this or I work on this. That's good. That's a basic job description. Like it was given to you on a piece of paper when you got hired. A better job description might be, well, I do this to really help and serve and facilitate and finance even and consult and improve the lives of people and bless people. That's a better job description. I do this and this and this so that I can make my community and the lives of people better. But a, what would be the best job description? What do you think would be a description that brings joy back into all your work and toil? Well, the scriptures say it. All the reformers would say it. It would be, I am blessed by God. I sense the presence and the pleasure of God when I do this and this and this because I know it's God who called me to do this. And joy invades calling. Joy comes when it's God who calls you to do this and this and this to improve the lives of friends and neighbors, but you do it as a direct relationship and response. And it is an attitude before God, God, I do it unto you. Joy comes rushing back. Well, verse 13 says, my conclusion is you should have holy fear. You should enjoy life and do good. Enjoy life and do good. And then he says, this is God's gift. Gift. Now, you see, if I just stopped right here and you left this place, you learned three good virtues and three good lessons. I would suggest to you, you would leave this room as if you attended a good synagogue, a temple, a religious studies course, an ethics lesson, a morality inspirational talk. That's good. But here, this is a massive clue when it says, this is God's gift. Now, you see what that means is, you cannot earn this. You can't work on it. You can't manufacture it. You can't buy it. Like, you can't just go home and just turn around and say, oh, I'm going to be humble, holy fear, now I'm just going to have joy and do good. No, 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 no. It's God's gift. And here's what I mean by this. Pay attention. All of the Old Testament is only preparation and pointing to the need for a New Testament. When you hear you ought to be a good person and do good things, that ought to drive you to show you you really can't do it and you need grace. In other words, everything about the Old Testament, when he cries out, he says, everything under heaven, everything under the sun is a zero-sum game. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. It's regret. It's disappointing. Why do I even live in it? Ah, that should then drive us all in this room to say, well, if there is a God, the one above and beyond the heavens, who resides way above the stars, who made all of the world that I am suffering in, what if he came down into it? What if God showed up in the person of Jesus to do something about it? That's the gift. That's the gift. You are not yet a Christian. 
if you want to be a good person and do good things, but you don't need grace and you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. I'm going to give us a final illustration that may just wrap all of this together. I've been biding my time on this. I think it's almost needless to say at my church or this church that I belong to. Post-seminary, the reverend and pastor and Dr. Timothy Keller, his influence in gospel preaching and ministry is it's incalculable. Pretty much incalculable. Two weeks ago, he passed on into the full presence and glory of God at the age of 72. I'm piecing together a lot of reports, essays, little clips. And I want to tell you, I've been learning a lot from Keller while he was alive. But recently, I am really struck, and I'm still learning from him, in how he died. In how he died. He told his friends while he was spiraling down and dying from pancreatic cancer that he cried a lot. He cried a lot with his wife, Kathy. He needed his friends so much, he actually zoomed in from the emergency room one time to his friends because he needed their fellowship. In an essay for The Atlantic, he says, he's never been more frightened, but his faith became more real. He says he's never experienced more grief, but happiness too. How so? How do you experience more grief and more happiness at the same time? In a little YouTube clip put on by Desiring God, a ministry by John Piper, they played a sermon clip of Tim Keller's back in 2013. The title of that sermon was, where do we find courage in life's scariest moments? The sermon was, where do we find courage in life's scariest moments? And Keller went on to unpack it. He said, well, the first part of courage is to look away from yourself while the whole world tells you, look at yourself, to muster up courage. Let me say that again. The first part of real spirit supernatural courage is to not look into your heart and look at yourself so you could have buck it up or muster it up. It's not self-esteemism. Hmm? It's not your own abilities. It's not your own spirituality. The first part of gaining courage when you are most afraid is not looking at yourself, but looking away. The second part of courage is this. Quote, real courage is not the absence of fear, it's the presence of joy. Real courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of joy. So much joy that the fear plays its role. Well, how do you get that joy? How do you get that joy? Again, this is not courage where you copy a worldly hero. Oh, I wish I could be someone like him. This is not courage where you have a lot of bravado. You're just that type of personality. It's not courage that anything, it emerges from you. But it's the only kind of courage when you come to believe in a God who has courage as one of his attributes. The only God in the universe who learned and gained courage was Jesus Christ in the garden who was scared to death. 
He did not pretend he was not scared. He did not put up self-bravado. He did not just say, I can handle this all on my own. But Christ Jesus himself, even he had to look away from himself. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Keller refers to that verse. Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. How? When you are so scared. It was for the joy. What was the joy for him? What was the joy outside of him? It was to please God, his father, and to redeem all his friends. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of joy. Presence of joy. That desiring clip, desiring God clip goes on and recalls when early 2000s when Tim Keller was first diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So you see, cancer was an old nemesis for him. Just continued to haunt him. And while he's being rolled into surgery, afraid, anxious, troubled, worried, Keller recounts, this is recorded in the book, Walking with God Through Evil and Suffering. He says he caught a glimpse of God's magnificent glory and mirth and joy. He said he caught a sense of God's magnificent, overwhelming joy and how our universe is just one tiny, tiny little speck of darkness. And Keller recounts when he got that sense, there was a surpassing courage and peace that attended to him. And he knew no matter what happens in the surgery now, Everything will be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Now, if you are anything like me, especially like me, a fellow preacher, do you know how much easier it is for me to tell other people, tell you to believe and experience such things on your deathbed? But for me to believe and experience such things on my deathbed, would take a whole other miracle. And at this point, I'm worried. I'm scared. Will I respond like Keller did? Will I have courage? Will I have peace if something like that were to happen to me or my loved ones? And as I'm almost reading my mind, Keller goes on the sermon, and here's one of the things I love most about him. Here's what he said. It was nice to have a moment of courage and peace like that. But quote, haven't had many moments like this. I can't hold on to him, hold on to them. But the courageous Jesus holds on to me. But the courageous Jesus holds on to me. Friends, look away, look away. Do not look at yourself. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Every gospel preacher worth any weight will tell you the same thing. Do not look into your heart. You look into the heart of his. Do not look at yourself. You look at his. You look at his abilities. You look at the courage that he gained and went all the way through for you so that he might hold on to you. And until you keep looking at him, you and I keep looking at him, even in a book through Ecclesiastes. That's the only way real humility, holy fear takes over. 
That's how you get filled with the presence of joy. And God does such unbelievable good in you and through you so that your life, you know, how you do life, it's something God is making beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All of it beautiful in its time. And the world will want to know how it's that way. And the only explanation will be because Jesus came down all the way into our world. Let me pray. Let's pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the riches of wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. But Lord, I pray all of it would drive us to look away, to look up at Jesus, the only one who grants us what we need most, desperately, even while we are most afraid, most worried, most troubled and at a loss. Jesus, Jesus, touch us, cleanse us, hold us closer and closer to yourself as we respond in worship and trust before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.